Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season six, episode three, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1936 gothic vampire film, Dracula's Daughter. It was written by Garrett Ford and directed by Lambert Hillier. The film stars Gloria Holden, Otto Kruger, Marguerite Churchill, and Edward Van Sloan, reprising his role as Professor Van Helsing. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Dracula's Daughter is also the direct sequel to the 1931 film Dracula. So we suggest that you watch that film and or listen to our episode about it. I'll link it in the show notes for you all. Okay, are you still here? Great, then let's get this morning started. So let's jump back in time real quick. In 1914, two years after Bram Stoker's death, a series of short stories entitled Dracula's Guest and Other Weird Stories was published. According to Elizabeth Miller, it was widely believed that Dracula's guest is actually the deleted first chapter from the original Dracula manuscript, which the publisher felt was too long for the story. In the preface to the original edition of Dracula's guest, Stoker's widow Florence wrote, To his original list of stories in this book, I have added a hitherto unpublished episode from Dracula. It was originally excised owing to the length of the book and may prove of interest to many readers of what is considered my husband's most remarkable work. So to sum up the story surrounding Dracula's guest, a young unnamed Englishman is wandering the Transylvania countryside when he stumbles upon a tomb with an inscription that reads, Countess Dolingen of Graz in Styria sought and found death, 1801. Inscribed on the back of the tomb, graven in great Russian letters, is, quote, the dead travel fast. And this is actually an ode to the Gothic ballad Lenore. Suddenly, the tomb's door opens and a young, beautiful woman is seen lying on the byre. A bolt of lightning hits the tree by the tomb and it startles the Englishman. The young woman awakens and she screams and the tomb crumbles on top of her. The Englishman is frightened, so he runs away and then he's pursued by a large wolf, which may or may not be the young woman that he just saw transformed. He eventually escapes to a nearby village and that's the end. So Universal Studios originally did not hold the rights to Dracula's Guest since it wasn't included in the original novel, but they were in talks of creating a Dracula sequel that was based on it. Catching on to this fact pretty quickly, Metro-Golden-Mayer executive David Selznick negotiated a contract in 1933 with Stoker's widow Florence to buy the rights to the deleted chapter for only $5,000. Universal was desperate to create a sequel with a female lead, and so they needed to buy the rights from MGM now rather than Florence. Selznick sold the rights to Universal for a hefty $12,500. Wow, what the heck? Yeah, so he made a buck off of that. Jeez. Universal's film, Dracula's Daughter, was supposed to be based on this story, although, as you'll hear in a minute from Abby, it uses nothing from the plot. Instead, it's maybe more similar to Carmilla, which is an 1872 gothic novella by Irish author Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu. We'll be talking more about Carmilla in a later episode, so stay tuned for that. 
Dracula's daughter was Gloria Holden's first starring role, and reportedly she was extremely displeased at having been assigned it. Like many actors at the time, Holden looked down on horror films, fearing that she would be forever typecast, much like Bella Lugosi was. Film critic Mark Clark believes that, ironically, it may have been Holden's disgust for the role that led to the quality of her performance. He said, quote, her disdain for the part translates into a kind of self-loathing that perfectly suits her troubled character. Shooting for Dracula's Daughter began on February 4th, 1936, before a script was even finished. In fact, the script wouldn't be finalized until the beginning of March, so about three weeks into filming. The film was released to the public on May 16th, 1936, at the Rialto in New York City. With a budget of 270000 it reportedly bombed at the box office. I could not find any reliable source stating what box office numbers it made, but if anyone knows, uh, please let me know because I couldn't find anything. At the time of its release, the film did receive decent critical acclaim. The New York Times gave Dracula's Daughter a solid, albeit somewhat tongue-in-cheek review upon its release, citing the film's blood-curdling events and noting that Gloria Holden is a remarkably convincing Batwoman, in concluding that the film is both quite terrifying and a cute little horror picture. Modern movie critics of today don't really appreciate the film as much, though. Many have called it a snooze of a sequel and comment on its inability to hold up after all of these years. Wow, rude. Yeah. (laughs) However, it's no doubt that Dracula's Daughter remains a huge influence for female horror fans and horror fans of the LGBT plus community all over the world. In the book Prism in the Light, I a biography of Anne Rice, Catherine Ramsland quotes Rice as saying, Dracula's daughter was the first time I saw vampires as a kid. I loved the tragic figure of Dracula's daughter as the regretful creature who didn't want to kill, but was driven to do it. The tragic dimension is, at its fullest, most eloquent and articulate in Dracula's daughter because she herself was articulate and intelligent. That sounds like a lot of the characters that she writes, actually, in her novels. Yes, absolutely. I agree. So not only was Dracula's Daughter one of the first films to show a female monster in a leading role, it also marks the beginning of the lesbian vampire trend in film. According to Gary Morris in his article, Queer Horror, Decoding Universal's Monsters, Quote, Gloria Holden's striking mask-like face and haunting luminous eyes are the intoxicating essence of transgressive lesbian power. With that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. Picking up right where Dracula left off, the bodies of the deceased Renfield and Dracula are discovered by police officers, and the main suspect in their murder is none other than Dr. Van Helsing. He is promptly arrested, and Van Helsing explains to Sir Basil Humphrey of Scotland Yard that vampires are afoot in London, and instead of a lawyer to help prove his innocence in the case, he asks for the counsel of one of his favorite former students, a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Garth. Meanwhile, one of the officers who had originally discovered the bodies watches over the corpses at a local jail, and a mysterious woman comes looking for the body of Dracula, urgently asking to see it. Her name is Countess Maria Zaleska, the daughter of Dracula. She is beautiful and shrouded in black with half of her face hidden from the officer. He insists that she must get permission to see the body, but she distracts him with a large jewel ring which she uses to hypnotize him until he is unconscious. Sneaking past the officer, she takes the body of Dracula outside to a pyre with the help of her servant Sandor where she sprinkles salt over his corpse with the aim to break his curse over her. She tells Sandor that she is now a free woman, free to roam amongst the living, but he reminds her that she cannot escape her curse and that there is death in her eyes. She cannot fight her nature and begins taking victims to quench her thirst for blood. She soon makes her way through English society and is introduced to Dr. Garth. Overhearing a conversation about the strange case with Van Helsing, 
Maria speaks up about wanting to become a patient of his so that he can help her overcome her dreaded curse of Dracula. She tells him that she is being controlled by forces beyond the grave, and while she doesn't say exactly what ailment of the mind is plaguing her, the doctor obliges and begins treating her, telling her that she must confront her quote-unquote addiction head-on and beat it. Hopeful, the Countess resigns to using her mind as well as Dr. Garth's advice to overcome her curse, but it is easier said than done, and she takes another young girl named Lily as a victim. While the Countess doesn't kill her completely at first, she hypnotizes her and basically puts her in a coma, draining her of blood. Lily is brought to the hospital to be seen by Dr. Garth, but no one knows really what has happened to her or where she came from. All they can tell Garth is that she has amnesia and severe blood loss, but the doctor can tell that she's been attacked by a vampire. He consults Van Helsing, and his suspicions are confirmed, but since Dracula was killed, they are left to speculate about who might have attacked her. Van Helsing tells him to find out where the attack took place, and he'd find the vampire there. After the incident, the Countess shows up at the hospital and tells the doctor that it is no use. She cannot control her urges, and there's no way that she can ever be cured, while at the same time begging him for help. She tells him of her plans to leave London forever, while admitting to the doctor that she gave in to her impulses. In turn, he offers to hypnotize her through mechanical means with a light contraption in his office. She refuses his help, saying that it's too late for experiments. As the Countess begins to lightly confess to her crimes, without giving too much detail, Lily is prepared to be treated and questioned by Dr. Garth. But the doctor knows better, and as he begins to treat the ailing young woman, the truth about the Countess is revealed. As all of this is happening in the hospital, the Countess schemes to lure Dr. Garth to Transylvania by kidnapping his secretary, a rather petulant young woman by the name of Janet Blake. Dr. Garth follows her to rescue Janet, and she demands that the doctor become her companion and spend the rest of his days with her in Transylvania. As she prepares to turn Dr. Garth, Sandor shoots her with an arrow straight through her heart in a fit of jealousy for not turning him into a vampire. Sandor lines up to shoot Dr. Garth, but Scotland Yard arrives in the nick of time and shoots Sandor. As the Countess dies, Janet's hypnosis is broken, and the reign of the Dracula's terror is over, for now. Thank you, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. Okay, so let's talk about the Bechtel test. Yes, it passes. Zaleska and Lily speak about Lily like posing for the painting. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a big moment that almost that entire scene happens without a man, like a man being named. Okay, so let's also look at Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No, and I was actually kind of surprised about this, but it's not. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? Good question. Stay tuned to learn a lot more. <laughs> so before we begin, I would like to recognize Doris V. Sutherland and her article, The Life and Times of Maria Zaleska. It is fantastic. So check it out. It's in the show notes. Also, if you hear like an echo on my end or like weird like noises, I'm in my bathroom right now. <laughs> Not that I'm the one making the weird noises in the bathroom. <laughs> but like sometimes like the water pipes, like the pipes will start like creaking and stuff. So if you hear something like that, just ignore it. I'm in my bathroom recording this because it's the only space that I have right now. I have like boxes all over my apartment. There's like a giant wasp outside. Oh my god. My, in my apartment flying around and I hate wasps. So here I am in the bathroom. So I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. Okay. Let's continue. Mm -hmm. So religious symbolism in Dracula's daughter. Um, I'm going to read the, I guess, like the prayer that she says right before she burns Dracula's body. So she says, unto Adonai, Adonai and Azrael, 
Unto the keeping of the lords of the flame and lower pits I consign this body to be forevermore consumed in this purging fire. Let all baithful spirits that threaten the souls of men be banished by the sprinkling of this salt. Be thou exercised, O Dracula, and thy body long undead, find destruction through eternity in the name of thy dark and unholy master. In the name of all holiest, and through this cross, be the evil spirit cast out until the end of time. It's actually extremely poetic. Mm-hmm. Um, According to Doris V. Sutherland in her article, The Life and Times of Maria Zaleska, she says, quote, her prayer reflects a curiously unspecific form of Abrahamic religion, combining a Hebrew name of God, Adonai, and the image of the cross alongside an invocation of the angel Israel. While regarded as a benevolent figure in Judaism, Israel is viewed as the angel of death in Islamic tradition. During this scene, Zaleska reveals her face for the first time, having been previously wrapped almost head to toe in black with only her eyes visible. This is presumably intended as a disguise while she stole Dracula's body, but the unmistakable result is that she resembles a woman in Islamic in an exomic burqa and veil. Wow. So that was a really interesting tidbit that I wanted to bring to everyone's attention, especially since we just recently covered A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and we're going to bring up that movie again at the end of this episode. So That is so interesting. So let's talk about the negative and positive representations in Dracula's Daughter. So the Hayes Code, which we talked more about in our episode about the film Freaks, was in full bloom in the 1930s, and according to Lily Hornyai, certain genres had the ability to create queer icons without drawing too much attention to the intended subtext. Horror was one of these genres, so lesbian vampires were born. While these portrayals are still arguably rather negative in terms of representation, queer audiences of the time highly enjoyed them and the subgenre survived even after the production code ceased. And during the Hays Code era, LGBT people could still appear as long as they were portrayed as criminals, predators, or unhappy, pathetic human beings in a way that viewers couldn't or wouldn't want to identify with. So, yeah, along with, like, musicals and animated movies, horror films were the main subject of fascination among gay viewers. So, Benshoff and Griffin explain more about this whole idea of queer villainy in movies in their book, America on Film, representing race, class, gender, and sexuality at the movies. And they said, quote, According to the horror film's generic formula, Normality, quote-unquote normality, which usually represents a heterosexual couple or institution, finds itself threatened by a figure or force that wishes to disrupt the, quote-unquote, the natural order. It's it's, It's interesting because you want to like, you know, these characters that are in these films, but the Hayes Code sort of villainizes them on purpose. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty upsetting. Um, Gary Morris, who I quoted earlier, he actually goes on to say, the glorious Gloria Holden plays Countess Zaleska as what was then, after the Gosi's enthusiastic evil, a rarity, a vampire desperate to escape the condition. And... You know, this sort of goes back to um, LGBT plus characters could be in, you know, Hayes Code films, but they had to be like reluctant. Yeah. You know, Gary Morris goes on to say that the Countess attempts to find a psychiatric cure for her malady. You know, what does this remind us of? Conversion therapy, which we're going to talk about soon. 
you know, and she's constantly at war with her wordless, insistent bloodlust, which most memorably appears in her slow seduction of the beautiful model Lily. And scenes of her cruising the dark streets of London, and cruising is the word that Gary Morris uses, play with society's image of the lesbian as a soulless predator. My god, it's crazy how films like this have really shaped the sentiments of how we treat gay people in our country. And now it's it's awesome because the tides are kind of starting to change, but it's so hard because, like you said, you want to like these films so much, and then the more you find out about them, the more you're like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, the following scene is probably the most famous in the film. Um, it's when Zaleska is at her studio, right, mm-hmm. with the young woman, Lily, mm-hmm. And she tells her to partially undress. She says, I'm doing a study of young girls' heads and shoulders. You won't object to removing your blouse, will you? And Lily does so. And all she has is like a cami with spaghetti straps, like holding it up. And then she says something like, I suppose you want me to remove these as well, like meaning her her spaghetti straps. And Valeska's like, yep, that's what I want. <laughs> yes. And it's obviously a very, very sensual scene. It's played out like it's going to be a sex scene. It does not play out like it's going to be a horror scene. Unfortunately, the scene ends with Valeska attacking Lily, showing lesbian desire in this film in a not-so-good light. And I mean, one of the taglines for this film was, quote, save the women of London from Dracula's daughter, unquote. Oh my god. Yeah. It's too obvious that this film was meant to have lesbian undertones, but Universal Studios would still send notes about, like, toning it down. Like, I guess they requested, like, script changes to, quote, avoid any suggestion of perverse sexual desire. Oh my god, that's wild. Well, there's a really good article that was published by the Daily Beast about um, a web series featuring queer vampires called Carmilla, and it's based on uh, Joseph Lee Fanu's novel that we talked about earlier um, by the same name. And author Amy Zimmerman explains it's not hard to draw a connection between the queer and the monstrous. At the heart of every horror story is a monster that threatens to up to upend a community's entire way of life. The monster is the abnormal creature that barges into an idyllic world and makes it strange. As Karen Tongson, an associate professor, professor of gender studies and English at USC, told the Los Angeles Times... People who lived with a lot of their love and their passion in the closet or who felt demonized in the broader culture, it's very easy to find points of identification with monsters. Author Michael Bronsky added, in some way, gay people, queer people, are the worst fear for heterosexuals, as well as, on some level, the best fantasy. The sheer pleasure of not being on the inside, of not having to control everything you do and think and say to fit norms. You you can't help but identify with these characters if you are part of the community because you understand like their struggle, but at the same time, they're made villains. It's tough, yeah, you know? Yeah, it is tough. It's hard when you have no representation and that's the only representation you get, and it's like... This isn't what it's all about, though, you know? Right. And that's why I'm, like, really excited for new films like Bit, Mm -hmm. which is all about, like, you know, trans vampires and, like, female clans of vampires, and they only turn, like, women into vampires and stuff. And it's just so amazing. And so, like, that's the kind of stuff that we can look forward to. But, yeah, it's really interesting where it all started, you know? And to go back to whether Zaleska is a lesbian or not, like, both Carmilla and Dracula's daughter share one significant aspect in common besides the vampirism, and that's the lesbianism. And, you know, and this is a very clear adaptation of Carmilla, and we talked a bit about bisexuality in 1931's Dracula because Dracula preys on both men, Renfield, and women, And now, in this film, Zaleska's first kill, or kiss rather, is a man, but she's sort of like one and done with him, you know? 
like we don't see the attack we just see him lying on the slab after the fact yeah and like she doesn't care about him in fact, Elizabeth Irwin of Horror Homeroom, which is has an amazing website and podcast, uh, she said that this male victim is likely born out of a desire to re-kill the father who has disappointed her than out of sexual desire. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that, I loved that. I was like, ooh, yeah, that is, that sounds about right. Yeah. And Zaleska repeatedly tries to avoid embracing Sandor as well. And honestly, she doesn't try to turn Jeffrey until he comes to save Janet. So there seems to be this strong connection of Zaleska to the women in this. Yeah, for sure. You know, speaking of Janet, like there's a scene at the end where Zaleska prepares to bite Janet, it looks like, and her mouth opens like she's about to kiss her. Mm-hmm. In the article, um, in Outtakes, Essays on Queer Theory and Film, Ellis Hansen describes this as, quote, what must surely be the longest kiss never filmed. But maybe we are just misreading all of this. Uh. <laughs> I know. So one of the more comprehensive queer readings of the film is Rona J. Berenstein's book, Attack of the Leading Ladies, which I highly recommend. It's such a great book. And she says, quote, to characterize Zaleska as a lesbian or bisexual in a conventional sense is to misread the transgressions performed by monsters. Monsters do not fit neatly with a model of human sexuality. Instead, they propose a paradigm of sexuality in which eros and danger, sensuality and destruction, human and inhuman, and male and female blur, overlap, and coalesce. Berenstein also points to the rather flat performance given by Otto Kruger as the heroic Jeffrey Garth, (laughs) something noted by at least one contemporary critic as weakening the heterosexual drive of the story and making the lesbian subtext that much stronger. I absolutely agree with this because no offense to Otto Kruger, I think he's dead now. But I guess no offense to his family, but he's most certainly not this strong, handsome, leading man kind of guy. Like, he's just not that type of material. In fact, he felt more like a, like a dad or boss character. Yes, for sure. You know, and like in theater terms, it, it doesn't, he doesn't have that look. Yeah. So it's like he was miscast. It was really strange. Um. So yeah, dear listener, what do you think about the lesbian and bisexual context surrounding this film? Please let us know. Yes. Good Morning Nancy is proudly sponsored by Recess Coffee. We wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans. And the great part is, is that each batch of coffee is locally, artisanally roasted, and it comes from fair trade farmers. Gracie, what's your favorite blend? Oh my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish. Yum! Ooh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just drink it black like my soul. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So guys, head on over to RecessCoffee.com to order yours today. Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. Let's talk about the underling in Dracula's Daughter, which is Sandor. So Doris V. Sutherland has a really great like insight looking at um, Sandor. And she says, since Bram Stoker created the character of Renfield, whose role was expanded in adaptations for stage and screen, vampires have often been depicted with mortal underlings. And I mean... They have been since then, too. Like, what we do in the shadows, like, that was all about having, like, a little underling. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
So Sandor is very different from the groveling Renfield. In a key respect, he is in charge of Zaleska's destiny rather than the other way around. He will be her servant if she turns him, aka has sex with him, and she doesn't want to. And, you know, feeling betrayed, he kills her. Early in the film, when Zaleska falsely believes herself to be cured, he tries to focus her mind upon... She tries to focus her mind upon happy, innocent thoughts as she plays Chopin's Nocturne Number no. 5. <laughs> yes. Um, but as she plays the piano, Sandor starts to, like, steer her mind towards darker stuff, and his attempts to control her then are driven by the fear that she may never fulfill his bargain. And this is why he murders her, because she talks about turning Jeffrey, and he sees that, and he just shoots an arrow through her heart. I love that look into Sandor, but I kind of want to look at it in another way and let us know what you guys think. But he was encouraging her vampirism, right? So if vampirism would represent lesbianism, Sander could also be an LGBT plus ally for Zaleska. Like he's basically against her seeking out this conversion therapy and wants her to embrace her quote unquote dark side, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And really, we could look at Sandor as a feminine gay man who wears dark, dramatic makeup and is looking for a way to be accepted into maybe this LGBT community. Mm -hmm. So Zaleska wanting to become a quote-unquote regular woman again kind of like throws Sandor's entire life like off the rails. Like his whole like desire to become a vampire is threatened yeah so the gateway so to speak will be closed for him it makes me feel kind of bad for him because he wants her to be true to herself you know like he realizes that she is she's doing things that go like we said completely against her nature and i don't know for me i kind of looked at him murdering her as like uh not a mercy killing but i guess sort of like it was selfish of him for sure but he's like eh, this like totally goes against like what you're trying to do and like you went against your nature and that kind of thing but it, it, in the end he was really jealous though yeah there was there was some toxicity though with him because he's he's controlling her not so much for her benefit I feel like but for his oh yeah so that's why I feel like he's not really that much of an ally like he's sort of an ally in disguise oh right yeah um we're gonna get into a difficult topic right here we're gonna talk a little bit about like what conversion therapy how it started and what it would have been like for somebody to deal with like in the early 1900s and 1930s. So take it away, Abby. Yeah. So in an article published by the History Channel, it is mentioned that conversion therapy via hypnosis got its start in the 1800s. And the article quotes, In 1899, a German psychiatrist electrified the audience at a at a conference on hypnosis with a bold claim. He had turned a gay man straight. All it took was 45 hypnosis sessions and a few trips to a brothel, Albert von Schrenk Notzig bragged. Through hypnosis, he claimed, he had manipulated the man's sexual impulses, diverting them from his interest in men to a lasting desire for women. He didn't know it, but he had just kicked off a phenomenon that would later be known as conversion therapy, a set of pseudoscientific techniques designed to quash LGBTQ people's sexuality and make them conform to society's expectations of how they should behave. Though it's dismissed by the medical establishment today, conversion therapy was widely practiced throughout the 20th century, leaving shame, pain, and self-hatred in its wake. Homosexuality, especially same-sex relationships between men, was considered deviant, sinful, and even criminal for centuries. In the late 19th century, psychiatrists and doctors began to address homosexuality too. They labeled same-sex desire in medical terms and started looking for ways to reverse it. 
And from there, it only got worse. Conversion therapy started with hypnosis, which then turned into more physical means of curing homosexuality. Methods like shock therapy and lobotomies became the norm for those undergoing this treatment, and aversion therapy was also introduced. And for those who might not know, according to Merriam-Webster, aversion therapy is defined as therapy intended to suppress an undesirable habit or behavior, like smoking, by associating the habit or behavior with a noxious or punishing stimulus, such as electric shock. Doctors believed that by showing photos or examples of homosexuality and shocking the patient in order to elicit a negative response, they could turn people into heterosexuals. So, yikes, basically. This is essentially what Zaleska is seeking, too. And she wants to be converted from vampire to human by Jeffrey. And he even says, like, confront it. Like, this to me sounds exactly like what is happening here. Like, these doctors believing that these examples of homosexuality and then shocking them at the same time. It's sad because Zaleska doesn't realize that she is born this way. And, like, Van Helsing in the film says that Dracula has had many victims, like, sort of meaning that she isn't literally his daughter, but someone who has been bitten by him. Mm -hmm. But if we want to look at it, like, metaphorically, like, being his daughter, she's going to have some biological things in common with him. And I don't know, honestly, like, human sexuality is really complex. And even though there have been studies proving and disproving the gay gene, we still don't accurately know. All we know is that you are born that way. Well, the thing that I really do love about this article that we quoted from the History Channel is that it calls conversion therapy a pseudoscience, which is exactly what it is. It's people with the basically injecting their own opinions into their scientific research, which is not what science is at all. And, you know, as we know, people are really slow to catch up with science and scientific discoveries because, you know, people claim that global warming isn't a thing. So, you know, we have established in the scientific community that, you know, nothing is concrete and every human is different. But yes, like you, when you are gay, you are born that way. There's nothing wrong with you. And like people need to accept that that has been scientifically accepted. So it's interesting to see a film come out during a time where it was illegal to be gay and that you could go through this conversion therapy in a no and a normal like basis like obviously like you mentioned like conversion therapy like still exists and it's terrifying but the fact that it was a norm it, it's it's a time capsule mm. that to me in this film is one of the true horrors is the fact that she is reluctant to be who she is you know really is so kind of on the same topic sort of let's talk about like tensions between the supernatural and the scientific like according to doris v sutherland in dracula's daughter this theme of supernatural and scientific like comes to the fore when jeffrey is first reunited with van helsing prior to meeting zaleska the vampire the vampire slain professor x asks jeffrey who can define the boundary line between the superstition of today and the scientific fact of tomorrow? And cites hypnosis as a phenomenon that gained acceptance despite being once dismissed. And now it's more dismissed in this modern time. Um, both before and after this line is delivered, the film shows Zaleska placing her victims into trances. However, we eventually learn that the process is not hypnosis as science would understand it, but something far older. In other words, it's not science, it's more like black magic. And Zaleska also refuses to reveal her exact problem to her psychiatrist, stating that it exists outside the sci of scientific knowledge. And then she semi-quotes Shakespeare's Hamlet and says to Jeffrey, There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in your psychiatry. This could almost be, I think, reversed in modern times. 
there's almost a limitation with heaven and earth. Yeah. And people, like you said, aren't accepting science. Where in these films, it's like the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. Like the rational people are all about the science. And they're like, there's nothing magical or different about anybody. Mm -hmm. But if we look now... It's like it's been reversed where people who are very religious and people who, you know, believe in the Holy Spirit and what whatnot, whatever, like they are like, there's, you can't be gay, like you can't be these things, like, and, and global warming doesn't exist and the earth <laughs> is only so many years old. Yeah. It's reversed. It's like, that is like black magic now, you know, yeah. rather than like science and I just thought that was kind of interesting, like how the tides have sort of turned yes. on us a little. My how the turntables. Okay, so let's sort of talk about a very interesting theory that I kind of love. Is it all in her head? According to Sam Digham, Zaleska's vampirism is portrayed as a blend of madness, female hysteria, Sexual dysfunction and addiction. She is reluctant. She is a reluctant vampire, dis- desperate to regain her mortality at any cost. Okay, so the question presented in Dracula's Daughter is not whether like Maria Zaleska is guilty of vampiric activity, but like whether or not she is actually a vampire. She seems to have been practicing, been a practicing vampire for so long, like for a lo- like hundreds of years. In fact, Van Helsing says at the end of the film, like, she's just as beautiful as she was 100 years ago. So she's obviously been a vampire for a long time, yet she doesn't seem to know how it works. And it's like she honestly thinks like her condition is something that could be cured by psychiatry and like at never at any point do we see her be any sort of supernatural person like she hypnotizes people with a ring but anybody can learn hypnosis she doesn't turn into a wolf she doesn't turn into a bat like she doesn't do any of these things that dracula does and like she's not killed with a stake through her heart she's killed with an arrow which is different yeah it wasn't exactly through her heart either it was like her rib cage (laughs) that's true and i was like i feel like if she was really a vampire they would make it a point to show (laughs) no pun intended they would make it a point to show it like going through her heart and we never see like if the sun like affects her at one point she touches a cross yes and she doesn't look at it but she can touch it And Sandor, who isn't even a vampire yet, can, like, he doesn't, he avoids it as well. Yeah. And it's so weird. It's like they're playing a game. It's like, it's not real. It's like Vampire the Masquerade. (laughs) It's like Vampire the Masquerade. For real, though. One of my favorite role-playing games. Yes. (laughs) But, yeah, like, what, what would this actually, like, be, do you think? Um, well... I found some interesting stuff when I was looking at, like, different personality disorders that kind of mimic these symptoms. And so, according to the Mayo Clinic, I found depersonalization, derealization disorder occurs when you persistently or repeatedly have the feeling that you're observing yourself from outside your body, or you have a sense that things around you aren't real or both. And feelings of depersonalization and derealization can be very disturbing and may feel like you're living in a dream. Whoa. Yeah. Many people have a passing experience of depersonalization or derealization at some point. But when these feelings keep occurring or never completely go away and interfere with your ability to function, it's considered a disorder. And this disorder is more common in people who have had traumatic experiences. Depersonalization, derealization disorder can be severe and may interfere with relationships, work, and other daily activities. And the main treatment for depersonalization, derealization disorder is talk therapy or psychotherapy, although sometimes medications are also used. So, So like Jeffrey. Yes. I thought this was really, really relatable to her situation because 
if she maybe experienced some kind of trauma at the hands of Dracula or Dracula's wives or something like that, this totally fits the bill for her. Like, she feels like she really isn't in control of her life and that someone else is controlling her and she, like, this body that she has and, you know, this curse that she has isn't really her. So some of the symptoms of this are persistent and recurrent episodes of depersonalization or derealization or both cause distress and problems functioning at work or school or in important areas of your life. And during these episodes, you're aware that your sense of detachment is only a feeling and not reality. And the experience and feelings of the disorder can be difficult to describe. Worrying about quote-unquote going crazy can cause you to become preoccupied with checking that you exist and determining what's actually real. Well, and she says that she can't describe what is happening to her, to Jeffrey. Right. and Which it's like, I want blood. That's what I want. But she can't even tell him that. Yeah, exactly. So, And it's like, hmm. we never really see her in the act. So who's to say that, like, she's actually doing these things and that maybe she is imagining, like, a separate reality. Like, she knows that they are just feelings and that it's not actually reality but it's sort of like she's living a double life almost so uh, let's talk about our final thought which is female vampires and the feminist agenda so according to genevieve valentine who has probably one of the best names on planet earth Mm -hmm. in her article how the vampire became the film's most feminist monster she says quote the image of the cinematic vampire femme fatale is so ubiquitous it's strange to think that dracula's daughter its earliest iteration was the only one of its kind for a generation It becomes markedly less strange, though, when these characters are seen as dots on a timeline with a rise in cinematic vampire women paralleling changing social attitudes about feminism. What easier form is there for ambitious women than a monster? And what better way to subvert derogatory attitudes than by making them infinitely powerful and alluring? Zaleska, longing to escape from patriarchal obligations, became the first on-screen vampire with a feminist agenda. Like, appearing less than a generation after the American suffrage, a mere eight years after full UK suffrage and three years before Countess Zaleska could have voted in Romania, that's no small feat. Vampirism is a charmingly reliable metaphor for a particular brand of cinematic feminism. There's no more economical embodiment of the powerful woman as both terrifyingly predatory and soothingly seductive. The vampiric woman reflects both the horror premise that a powerful woman is a direct threat, a literal bloodsucker out for domination, and the fantasy premise that even if a woman who casts no reflection is out to kill you, she'll she'll still take the time to look her best. (laughs) And as the cultural discussions around feminism shift, so too do on-screen portrayals of vampire women. And that is what's so great because, like, we're going to start with Dracula's daughter and we're going to then hit the middle, which is, like, a girl walks home alone at night. And then currently, which is, like, a bit, vampirism has changed with feminism. It's so amazing. And Genevieve Valentine goes on and says... Vampirism is is in film is largely its own occupation. Cinematic vampires are consumed for the hunt for blood, the search for love, or the nature of immortality itself. A female vampire is, by default, a career woman. She might not always be elite, as the blue-collar vampires of Near Darker, but... And vampirism provides her both goals and resources, a powerfully feminist combination. It also suggests freedom from prescribed sexual and social norms. A narrative pulp culture has never hesitated to explore. That's such a great quote, and she has such a great article, How the Vampire Became the Film's Most Feminist Monster. It's in the show notes, read it. But I was like, 
Yes. The whole time I was reading this article, so good. It is so good. And Dracula's daughter really led the way for female vampires. I mean, in a previous episode of ours for A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, we talk about the strength and power that the girl represents and how important this is for the pillars of feminism. Like, she exercises her freedom to choose regularly. In another article by a favorite of ours, Bitch Flicks writer Melissa Kelly Franklin says in her article, Feminist Fangs, the Activist Symbolism of Violent Vampire Women, quote, both Byzantium and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night suggests that action against sexism and misogyny should be targeted and dramatic. Society has always deemed violent women as creatures to be feared. As by eschewing established gender structures, they are unpredictable and uncontrollable, violating the supposedly natural laws that define their femininity. That's not to say that these films encourage bloody criminal violence, but rather they advocate the rejection of restrictive social constructs of femininity and redressing gender imbalance, using violent women characters as a potent symbol of feminist activism. While both films are obviously different from Dracula's daughter in their own right, we see that female vampires can represent a wide array of female character types, Women who get to choose their own path, who have freed themselves from patriarchal and gender constructs. And in Dracula's Daughter, the Countess frees herself from her domineering father by burning him on a pyre to free herself from his curse. She walks as a free woman with a man-servant. And she's single. Yep. And not only is vampirism her, her, like, job, she also has a real job. She's a painter. Yes! Incredible. And despite Sandor's constant reminders that she is bad and that she can only ever be evil, she still fights for what she wants and she takes it without mercy. Ultimately, she feels like she isn't getting anywhere when she approaches the men in her life for assistance, so she takes matters into her own hands to secure her desires. And while she is a killer, it's really only fair to show a woman doing this, as men have been portrayed in this way for literally centuries. This movie takes that narrative and shifts it from the male perspective to a female one, and it shows a woman unapologetically taking something because she wants to and she can. Ugh, so good. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. So head on over to www.goodmorningnancy.com merch and click the shirt icon to be taken to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We review horror trailers, TV shows, and new movies over there, so become a patron, won't you? You can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. You can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye!